Hear the word of the Lord. Mary responded, Oh, how my soul praises the Lord, how my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he took notice of his, lo- of his lowly servant girl. And from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one is holy, and he has done great things for me. He shows mercy from generation to generation to all who fear him. His mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and haughty ones. He has brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. He has helped his servant Israel and remembered to be merciful. For he made this promise to our ancestors, to Abraham and his children forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. It's great to see everybody. Merry Christmas. Uh, if you're a guest, thanks for making us part of your uh, holiday tradition here. And uh, I guess a quick word, it's not policy of the pastors to leave ladies who've fallen out of wheelchairs in the side of the road. So we'll be talking afterwards, Lachlan. <laughs> but thank you guys for that. That was really sweet. And uh, man, I can't, no, we didn't have any kid go AWOL. How about that? How about that? God is faithful. One person applauding. You know, it's happened before. Um, well, uh, here we are at the, the long-expected night, right? Um, the night we've been waiting for for a long, long time. And what's under the tree? Uh, what's tomorrow going to hold for us? Uh, I, I really want to meet the person that wakes up tomorrow with a white Lexus and a red bow in their yard. Uh, just because you're going to get it. Yeah, five-year-old say that's you. I want to meet your parents. Um, see if that actually happens. Some of us are filled with excitement about tomorrow and uh, the promise and mystery of, of, it, of what it holds. And uh, some of us are filled with dread over tomorrow. Um, maybe this is a first Christmas without a loved one. Uh, maybe this will be a day that reminds you of uh, the losses and pain of this last year. Uh, it's, it's all across the spectrum. And uh, wherever you are, Uh, Christmas brings out the deep longings of our souls, be they good or bad. And I think that that longing is a gift, whichever end of the spectrum it's on. And and one reason is because it places us near the heart of God's people so many years ago. We've been looking at the the mothers of Jesus and the genealogy of Matthew, um, genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. And and we finally come to Mary, and it's easy to get excited Um, or see this as an incredibly sentimental story. But we have to remember that before the scene we're going to look at with Mary, there were 400 years of silence. Uh, 400 years with questions like, is God even real anymore? Um, And if he's real, maybe we still think he's real, but does he even care? Uh, These are some of the questions that a lot of us are asking around Christmas. Well, if he cares about people, well, surely he doesn't care about me. I, I love how you said God loves us and he likes us. God is love, so of course he has to love us, but that doesn't mean he's really like for me or about me. And and then after all the the centuries of silence, on one mysterious winter day, God breaks the silence. Uh, But he doesn't do so at a palace or at the White House or in a boardroom. He shows up to a young teenager from a nowhere town and a nowhere family. An angel surprises this young girl, Mary, with startling news. This is what he says. 
Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. It seems like a simple enough greeting. Uh, We know from earlier that this is the angel Gabriel. Uh, His name means strong man of God. He shows up all over the Bible. The prophet Daniel tells us he has the appearance of a man and that he stands in the presence of God. Most of the time when he shows up, he's bringing messages from God and people are usually afraid. So think about this young teenager, Mary, and this large, powerful man shows up and says, greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. Something about his presence makes it clear that he's an angel. So this intimidating, powerful presence combined with this strange message leaves Mary utterly bewildered. Uh, the, the word favor here, uh, it comes from a word that we translate grace in some other places. It speaks of favor. Uh, it's, it's not the same, but the idea is almost like one of inheritance, though. You have to be a member of a family to get an inheritance, right? Uh, this word favor here, it, des- it describes a, um, a sense of a father's love to a child. It, it conveys the message of adoption, of being a part of a family, So this nothing girl from a nowhere town hears mighty Gabriel saying to her, the Lord is with you. The Lord has favored you. Don't be afraid. The Lord who adopts you is giving you a special gift. And like many of us, Mary is speechless. She she doesn't know what to say. And so the angel continues to press into her confusion. He says, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Now, many of us are aware, if you've read the Bible or if you've been at this church for a while, that God is in the business of giving miracle children. Uh, We've seen him open the wombs of people that we thought couldn't give birth all over the Bible. God looks at families, women who've been trying and trying and trying and gives them a child. And and now he comes to this young girl, Mary, who's never tried. There's this whole new category of pregnancy here. And what's more, Gabriel makes it clear this child is someone special. He's called the son of the most high. You won't find that other places in the Bible. Son of the most high. He'll be a king, and not just any king. He'll be a king in the line of David who will reign forever. This is Gabriel using deeply biblical language to say, this child will be God. And the way Mary responds shows that she's beginning to understand what's happening. She says, I'm the Lord's servant. May everything you've said about me come true. This is kind of like this. Whatever you say, boss. This is is a response of faith and trust. And and this is how we respond to all of God's gifts, faith and trust. Because the promises God makes, the gifts he uh, gives, they don't always make sense. So again, Mary's a virgin. There's no category for pregnancy as a virgin. Do you realize what else God is telling her here? I would would argue that if Christmas is just this totally sentimental hallmark holiday for you, you have missed the meaning of Christmas. God is saying to her, uh, the angel is saying to her, that God will make you pregnant, his spirit will come upon you and make you pregnant, 
and then you will give birth to God. Can you imagine hearing that? You, will, you won't sleep with a man and you will give birth to God. The infinite one will become finite in you. The, the immortal will become mortal in you. The mighty one, the maker of heaven and earth, the almighty, he will become a single cell organism in your womb. The most vulnerable and the weakest form of life that we know of in the universe. And the angel is saying, Mary, that's gonna happen in you. How can this be? How is this possible? The proper response to that is, it's not possible. So Mary opens up her hands and she says, may everything you've said about me come true. May it be. The scene with Mary and the angel is called the Annunciation. And it shows us the nature of God's gift at Christmas. First, some of you really need to be reminded that God never stops hearing the cries of the needy. He never, he never grows hard to the concerns and the longings of the human souls. This is a gift from the heart of God, a God who hears you and who is near to you. It's a, it's a gift of grace. It's not something he looks down and says, look at, look at what a great job they're doing. He says, no, I see the people and their brokenness and their neediness, and I will draw near And then second, it shows us the heart of a God who cares and loves deeply. You see how personal this gift is? In a few verses, we find out that Mary sees herself as a profoundly low member of society, probably came from a poor family. The angel doesn't say, don't worry, Mary, for Christmas this year, you're going to win the lottery and get a new house and get a new car, and I'm going to change all of these circumstances. God's gift to us on Christmas isn't new circumstance, new provision or, or stuff. It's it's much more personal than that. God gives himself. He gives what the world really needs, access to him, relationship with him, his own presence. So Christmas invites Mary and, and all of us into the most dramatic mystery of all. And that's the wonder of God who hears us, who adopts us, who blesses us. And and for many of us, especially if you've had a hard year or a hard decade or a hard life, this requires deep faith and trust. How could God love me this much? How could he draw near to me this much? How could he keep listening? How could he remain silent? How can this be? In the scene that follows after this, what was just read for us, uh, we... We don't just see the nature of God's Christmas gift, though. We see the power of it, what it can do to us if, like Mary, we're willing to receive it with faith and trust. After this interaction with the angel Gabriel, uh, Mary gets out of town, and she goes to one of her relatives, a woman named Elizabeth, and Elizabeth confirms the truth of what Gabriel has told Mary. And Mary responds by singing. If you've read your Old Testament, you know that when God does something powerful, a lot of times people will start singing. And most of the time, there's this big call to worship, like what we have at the beginning of our services. God does something great, and some kind of worship leader says, hey all, let's start singing. But there's a few instances where someone is so so used by God, they're such a particular instrument of salvation, that they start singing in the first person. 
when someone sees that God has used me to bring about salvation, they start singing in the first person. Think about Moses. And so Mary, when she is confirmed by Elizabeth that this is all true, she starts singing in the first person. She puts herself in a very rare category of people in the Bible. And her song is what we call the Magnificat. And it shows us that God's gift has the power to transform us in the deepest places of who we are. And so Mary begins by saying, oh, how my soul praises the Lord, how my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Do you see how it's first person? It's personal. She's talking singularly about herself. This puts her in very exclusive company in the Bible. She sees that something incredibly significant is happening with far-reaching implications. She gets this taste of grace from God, and it clears her mind, it calms her heart. Do you see how we don't see confusion or questions from Mary anymore? She's not saying, well, how could this be? I've never been with a man. How will this happen? And this is not a sentimental forced reaction here. This is Mary from the deepest parts of herself. Think about what's going on in her mind. This is a 14-year-old girl, give or take, who knows she's about to have to tell her fiance that she's pregnant. And it went much differently in that culture than it goes in our culture. This is a a young girl who knows that her baby bump will develop long before the wedding day. This is a girl faced with an almost impossible social situation and even more so an impossible pregnancy. But she gets this taste of grace and, and she's not trying to sort out this mystery. She's not pulling the why gods and demanding answers. She's holding this mystery. She's rejoicing in it, reveling in it. This is a response from the core of who she is. And when she gets a taste of the grace of God, it replaces her confusion with peace, and it transforms her perspective on her own life. As she continues, she says, he took notice of this lowly servant girl, and from now on, all generations will call me blessed. From her culture's perspective, you got to see that Mary was entirely unremarkable. She was poor. She was young. She was from nowhere. But now she doesn't see herself that way anymore. Because she, of all people, this girl, has been chosen by God to be an instrument of the world's salvation. And now she knows that all generations will call her blessed. And this word blessed for us, we hear it and we think lucky or fortunate. Um, Or maybe driving through Chick-fil-A, have a blessed day, right? Like, What does that even mean? It it means so much more than that. In, In the Bible, The word blessed is closely related to this huge uh, biblical word called shalom. Um, Sometimes shalom will be translated as peace, and we think, you know, no one's fighting. Um, But it's, it's more that internal peace wholeness, being the kind of human we're meant to be. It's, it speaks of a restoration of healed brokenness, restored to your full humanity. Mary sees what God has done and says, I have shalom. They will call me blessed. I was low, but now I'll never be forgotten. Not because of my humility or my worthiness, but because God has graciously worked his miracle in me. She's not fighting her circumstances anymore. She's finding incredible contentment in them. And this doesn't just change her perspective on herself, but the entire world too. Look at what she says here. This next part of the song is kind of uncomfortable for many of us. 
She says, uh, sings rather, his mighty arm has done tremendous things. He scattered the proud and haughty ones. He's brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. These are difficult words, um, especially I would argue if, if you had options on what you're eating on Christmas Eve, if you had to pick between which pair of shoes you wore to church today, the, the world will call you rich. You are in the category of the rich in terms of humanity. So it's easy for us to be like, well, that doesn't apply to me, right? I'm not that rich. I only drive a used car or whatever you think. If you, if you had options with food this morning, you're rich. But if we're willing to sit with the discomfort for a moment of what these words imply, we will see real clearly the power of Christmas. And one of the, one of the first things Christmas does is it disrupts us. Again, if, if Christmas is a purely sentimental holiday for you, you've yet to understand it. Um, the world teaches you to believe in yourself, right? To solve your own problems, to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Have you ever thought about the imagery of that? It's not possible, right? It's not possible. And have you ever noticed how the Bible, and Christmas in particular, tells us God never moves in those people? Have you ever noticed how those who are so full of themselves and self-assured, this whole I forgot there were kids in the room. I was about to say something I would regret. This whole foolish notion uh, that God only helps those who help themselves is one of the least biblical ideas in our culture. Uh, the the self-assured, the self-confident, the people who think they can make it. Have you ever noticed in the scriptures that God almost never moves through those people? Is this saying God just hates the rich and the powerful? No, that's not what this song is about. It's saying that God typically doesn't move in those people because those people don't want him to. Think about, think about this. It, the point Mary is making here is not about their, their wealth or their position, but rather their posture. Does God hate the wealthy and powerful? No, but more often than not, the wealthy and powerful hate God because they, they tend to hate the idea of someone else being in control. If you've had some success in your life, if you've had some things go well for you, it's easy to think that you have what it takes. And so maybe you look at God as this like partner in your life or this consultant. So when stuff gets confusing, I'll open up the Bible and, you know, give God a little bit of money at church and see if he'll give me some advice. And listen, God refuses to be your partner. He refuses to be your consultant because he is the Lord. He is king, and he will tolerate no other. Christmas disrupts your notion that you have what it takes because God is on the move in the margins. He, he goes to the oppressed. He goes to the lowly. He goes to the poor because it's there on the margins when people can acknowledge their weakness and their sin. You can hide your brokenness when you're in the boardroom. You can't hide your brokenness when you're at a soup kitchen. The poor, the marginalized, they're the ones eager for God, eager for help to come, and aware that they are needy. See, the gospel is 
is only good news for people who know their lives are filled with bad news. It's only good news for people who are willing to admit how much help they need. That's one reason why God's great revivals, not just in the scriptures, but throughout history, almost always begin on the margins. Almost always come from the places that we wouldn't expect. It is so like God to come to a nothing girl from a nothing family in a nowhere part of the world and say, this is how I will change everything. Christmas must disrupt you if you're to understand it. And in this disruption, you will see that Christmas is the great reversal. If if neediness is the core requirement of Christianity, then trust is the core virtue. What does God require of you? Admit your neediness. How do I move forward with God? Trust him. Mary sees that God has drawn near and he's heard our prayers. He's not forgotten us. He's not far off. So despite an impossible scenario, like getting pregnant as a virgin is the least complicated thing about the pregnancy and birth of Jesus. Despite an impossible scenario, she trusts and it brings about this great reversal. The lowly is now blessed. He goes to the powerless and the overlooked and says, this is how I will save. Has this not been the great theme of our entire Mothers of Jesus series? He he goes to someone that no one would expect, someone low, and he exalts them. God reverses our fortunes. He takes what's foolish to do something wise. He uses the powerless to show his power. He takes the ugly to show his beauty. He uses the outsider to bring us all home. God reverses our values. He brings us into the upside-down kingdom of his son. Think about this just a bit more. Maybe, Maybe you come this morning afraid of God. Anybody willing to admit they've been afraid of God or like God's going to come get them or I've done something too much or God's going to find out? It's awkward to raise your hand, so don't raise your hand. But maybe you come this morning afraid of God. So how does God come to you? A baby! Is that not the least intimidating thing in the world? I've yet to meet a human who is afraid of a baby human. Even the, the most socially awkward of us, when we see a cute baby, you know, you kind of want to hold it, right? You want to get near to it. You want to, babies draw you in of all of the ways God could show up to us. He comes in something so vulnerable and attractive. How will God usher us into relationship with himself? Think about the reversals here. The king of the universe, not through a red carpet, but rather deep vulnerability. Not by winning an argument, but by putting his defenses down. How does he fix our mess? By taking our mess upon himself. All relationships require this kind of vulnerability. Marriages that don't work out almost always are because the couple, both people have their defenses up. So we, I did some of it, but she did 80% of it. Well, he did 40%, I did 60%. The marriages that work are the ones that can say, the way to, vulner, the way to intimacy is through vulnerability. It's not through fighting. It's not through arguing. And God lays all of his defenses down. He takes 100% responsibility for something. He comes in weakness, not in defensiveness. No marriage or friendship works while defenses are up and we're closed off. And it works the same with God. So he comes to us through vulnerability. 
Jesus sums up the great reversal when he says it, he puts it so plainly for us. If you want to save your life, you have to what? Lose it. The values of the kingdom function differently. So just take a second and think about your life. How much of your life is spent trying to improve your station in life? How much energy do you spend trying to make it different? Christmas announces that God is available to you, and if you have him and know him, you will find the ability to become vulnerable. You will find the ability to admit weakness. You'll find strength through suffering. You'll find contentment in your circumstance because you see the great reversal of God's kingdom. You're made in the image of God. To put that real simply, you're made to live the way God lives, and he goes to the margins. He comes in weakness. He comes in vulnerability. So maybe the biggest Christmas question is, will you trust him? And when we look at the end of Mary's song, we, we see this beautiful final power of Christmas that in some ways gives us power to follow the rest of it. So in verse 54, she begins and says, he has helped his servant Israel and remembered to be merciful for he made this promise to our ancestors, to Abraham and his children forever. Mary realizes that what's going on is not something new. This is fulfillment of an ancient promise. Mary knew her Old Testament. And after all the centuries of silence, all the pain, all the longing, she knows that God keeps his word. God knows he's near and he never breaks a promise. To experience the power of Christmas, you have to look at the baby Jesus and say, this is my only hope. You must look at the weak, vulnerable baby and say, this is how God saves. You must look at the unresolved melodies in your life and trust that God keeps his word. You have to look at your exposed wounds and trust that God hears you and draws near you. You may not always understand it, which is okay because Mary, the mother of God, didn't either. Help may not come the way you expect it. It certainly didn't come the way Mary was expecting it. But Christmas tells us that God keeps his word. He has, does, and will always come through for you. And Christmas is the great example, the great evidence we have that God loves us, he hears for us, he hears us, draws near to us, and he keeps his promises. And he takes it even a step further. If, if you're here and you need evidence that God loves you, that he's for you, this is why we root ourselves in communion every week because it's, it's the most beautiful evidence we have that God keeps his word and he stays near to us. This little baby, he doesn't hit puberty and become this mighty powerful king. He gets a blue collar job. He lives a homeless itinerant ministry and then he's executed like a criminal. He maintains a life of vulnerability and brokenness in the way he calls us to remember what his kingdom is like. Remember that God is a promise keeping God as he looks at his disciples, he takes a loaf of bread and he says, this is my body broken for you. Eat this and remember what I've done for you. After the meal with his disciples, he took a cup of wine and said, this is what makes you safe with God. It's my blood shed for you. Drink this and remember what I've done for you. So this is the message of Christmas, that God became a baby, lived a life of vulnerability. He suffered and died in your place so that you could come home and experience shalom. You could experience healing and wholeness and become a human again. 
Our tradition at Sojourn is to come forward and rip off a piece of bread, dip it in wine or juice. Wine will have a piece of twine wrapped around it and we'll have gluten-free elements to my left, your right, and we'll have stations in the back. I'll pray and then Christians, you can come forward as you're ready. Let's pray.